thank you, Jesus. Would you oblige me in just lifting your hands just for one brief moment in the presence of our King? I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to be one, but I'm musing over something that I heard the Lord say, and I believe that He's speaking. And it's not just for our congregation, but I believe that He's saying something to the global body. Those of us that have chosen to worship online, the Lord welcomes that format. But if you're at home and you're concerned about the virus, the Lord is inviting us back into our houses of worship globally. Globally. And I want to extend that invitation to you to consider coming back into the house of God. But also we welcome those who've chosen the online format as well as a legitimate expression of what God is doing in the latter times. Slip your hand up again, everyone. I've got one more thing to tell you. While we're going back, I believe that God is doing a new thing. I whispered in the ears of our pastor, God is giving us a new congregation, a new house, a new start after the pandemic. Remember the house of God in your giving. We may have gotten out of our habits. We're going back to our habits that are eternal habits. Remember our tithing and our offerings to God. There are so many ways to do that. Because when God gets ready to move Zechariah, we've got to remember to build the house of God. And then God said, I'm going to fill this place with glory, saith the Lord. Amen and amen. Put your hands together quickly for music and worship arts. And you may be seated in the presence of God. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Robert. Phenomenal. I believe in quality worship, and as long as God allows us, we're going to make sure that you receive quality worship. And we simply ask you to reciprocate, reciprocate quality worship back to God. And that would be justice for all. Just before we go into the word of the Lord, it's Black History Month. I had something else for Master Class, but I thought I would just leave something with you for consideration. Ask yourself a question. I won't do much talking beyond this. If, if racism is an injustice, a dastardly wicked thing, and if it's kept so many people behind, not just people of color, but it's happened to other groups, and of course to people of color it's happened, what should the church be doing to alleviate this ill from society? Enjoy. We have some real problems in this country that are deep and structural that have to be confronted with the truth of who we are. I invite each and every one of you listen to these different voices. Have the courage to say, hmm, let me see what this wrestling with white supremacy and black love is all about. In this class, we are going to be focusing on these powerful issues together. You will learn how slavery and anti-blackness is foundational to nearly every American institution in modern life, even if we refuse to see it. You may hear things that you find hard to believe. They are a testament to parts of our history that we've dismissed. The story that you can tell about this country, about it being a land of equality and opportunity, who gave America that? We gave America that. There has been this un 
broken history of struggle for liberation for hundreds of years. Black people managed to create beauty in the very process of fighting structural racism. Black love is that thing that makes you believe in American democracy, even when American democracy hasn't believed in us. One of our jobs is to try to make there be as little racism as possible. A more important job is to see where the racism is and think about ways that we can get past it. Race is a fiction. Racism is real. What do we do with that? And it's only in having that understanding of what built the country that we're in that we can dismantle the parts of our country that don't live up to its highest ideals. I'm John McWhorter. I'm Sherilyn Eiffel. I'm Jelani Cobb. Nicole Hannah-Jones. Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. Cornell West. I'm Angela Davis, and this is Masterclass. Amen. Think about it. Pray about that. Let's go into the Word of the Lord. Grab your Bibles electronically or your books if you still have those. I'm going to wait for those that are coming in to be seated. We're going to understand the origins of our absence. I'm going to need a hundred percent of your attention because there are things that I will say that I believe will challenge your thinking, but I want to challenge you critically to go back to the scriptures to find out why people of faith are not predominantly in leadership roles in society. That's what we're going to try to answer today. Why the collective body doesn't appear to be in leadership roles in the world as a normative practice. And we're going to look at where this started. There's a passage of scripture, Genesis chapter number four, often neglected. You don't have me right here, but try to fix it if you can. Often neglected, but it's significantly important to understanding why people of faith are absent from roles of leadership on par with people who are not of faith. So our subject is present Christianity. We're using this as a subject because our belief is that as Christians, we should not be absent from the world, but we should be very present, not just in our sanctuaries, but we should be present in the world at large. In fact, my belief is that we should be driving the world toward its destiny. And that should be known. It shouldn't be something that we're praying about and telling ourselves we're praying about it. But everyone should know that the fate of the world hinges on what the church does and does not do. That's what should happen. So it shouldn't be something in secret. We're praying for the world and we're casting down. But no one knows that we're the ones driving the world toward its ultimate destination present Christianity. If you need a scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, ye are the salt of the earth. It can't be salt and be absent at the same time. It is an impossibility. So let's get into this. We're going to look at the origin of our absence. If you don't agree with me at the end of the presentation, tell me what you think. All right, Genesis chapter 1. Let's do some review from last week. We talked about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and what it it really says to us about God's creatorship in the Word of God. And what, what, are, what are some of the lessons that God is teaching us out of these two chapters? Foundation. We found this out, that God blessed humanity. The scripture said, and God blessed them. Human beings, male and female, man and woman. 
And he blessed them to rule and reign together. In the mind of God, there was not a master-servant relationship that existed between the man and the woman. That's important for you to get a hold of. God did not have in his mind a master-servant. Women don't serve men. Men don't rule over women. That's how God set it up. What it is now is a product of the fall. But in the beginning, God blessed them to reign together. That is significant. That's where Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 3 that in Christ he's not nullifying gender, but he's going back to Genesis. There's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile. He's eliminating all the distinctions that keep us separate, and he's moving us back to an egalitarian way of understanding our humanity. We prove this in the Bible that when you talk about the genders, don't think of distinctions, think of continuity. Male and female, they don't really exist to be distinct. They exist for the purpose of continuity. So we establish this. He is called Adam and she is called Adam. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2 will teach us that. He is called Adam. She is called Adam. Significantly important is that he is actually the head. She is not servant. She is the body. That's the principle of continuity. He is the head, she is the body. You can't have a head without a body, and a body without a head is of no benefit. He is the head, she is the body. Significantly important, he is called man, she is called woman. The idea there is that she is a man with a womb. That's continuity again. He holds the deposit, he puts it in her, she carries the deposit, and thus we get continuity. That's how you understand the relationship. And when you move further into the New Testament by prefigurement, uh, he is Christ, she is therefore church. That's how God blessed them together. The church has to recover that understanding of the male-female relationship and work together. The second one is significantly important. Then God said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, he blessed us to produce much. So we are blessed to be producers. John picks up this idea in 3 John. He says, beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. I want us to pause for a moment. I want you to take your hands, everyone in the sanctuary. I want you to lift up your hands. Robert, play something for me. I want you to lift up your hands. This is so important. God needs every Bible-believing Christian to prosper. I want you to know that. This is not a joke. It's vitally important. Throw away all the religiosity. Throw away all the Phariseeism. God needs us to prosper. He needs everyone because his work needs to prosper. So over your life, I'm going to speak the scripture, even at home. Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul doth prosper in Jesus' name. You say amen to that. Look for it. Look for it. Look for it. Expect it. It's God's will. In fact, it's God's covenant that we prosper. The third thing we discovered is that we're blessed to subdue opposition. 
This is the blessing, the empowerment. Subdue the earth. If anything opposes you, you have power to subdue it. The word subdue comes to us from a Hebrew word, rada. Rada means to tread upon things or to place them under your feet. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus picking up the Genesis idea, he says, behold, I give you power to do what? To tread rada upon serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. So we are blessed to subdue the enemy. Uh, Luke will teach you that. You've got to believe that. When the enemy comes against you, the Holy Spirit is lifting a standard. You've got to move with the standard of God. So whether that's confessing Satan, you will not prosper against me. Whether it's decreeing that this thing that's warring against me, it will die in Jesus' name. Because we are blessed to subdue opposition. Now let's go a little further. We also learned from Genesis chapter 2, the whole idea of dressing the garden, keeping the garden. We found out that dressing is actually serving through worship. The first three are blessings. The second two are commandments. God says to Adam, dress the garden. And so we've discovered that it is God's command that we worship at all times. Whatever the situation, that's why David picks it up. These are Genesis themes. And you will see how the entire Bible is designed to pull your mind back to Genesis, pull you out of the provisional and bring you back to the ideal. David said, I will bless the Lord at all times because we're supposed to praise him at all times in all situations and in all circumstances. That's how we dress our garden. And the last thing is he says, keep the garden, watch the gate, be observant, protect your garden. So we find out that we're, we're to war for all things. Whatever God has given to you, fight for that. Whatever you believe is a promise from God, fight for it. Am I right? Fight the good fight of, lay hold to eternal life. Whatever is in eternal life, you've got to fight for that. And Isaiah 59 will teach you that. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Holy Spirit in you is raising a standard every time. What does that mean? In other words, the Holy Spirit is telling you, don't be afraid. Don't back down. Don't back up. Watch. This is what the Holy Spirit is telling you. If you would listen, stand still. You will see the salvation of your God. Listen, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. So the Spirit of God is always raising a standard against the enemy. Because God has commanded us to war for all things. That's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But in chapter number 3, we make some mistakes our fathers did, and we still continue to make those mistakes. And I want to show you the five errors. And then the last seg segment of today's message is really where I want you to pay attention. These are the mistakes that we know that they make. The man and the woman, they listen to the wrong voices in the garden. A serpent begins to speak. There are three voices in the garden that are significant. The serpent, the spouse, and the spirit. The man listens to the spouse. The spouse listens to the serpent. No one is listening to the spirit. So Revelation picks it back up again and say, listen, don't make this mistake. First, listen to the spirit. He that hath an ear to hear, let that person hear. So you've got to train yourself to listen to the Holy Spirit. One of the things the enemy does in life is he creates a lot of noise. 
And what the noise does, do you know what's happening in Ottawa right now? There's an injunction that those citizens that live in that downtown area are fighting against the government because they said all the horns, it's tormenting us. We can't sleep, all the truckers are blown. That's what the enemy does. He puts noise into your life to torment you so that you don't listen to the voice of God. To hear the Holy Spirit, you have to be still. Watch this. When you are still, it produces knowledge. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted above whatever you're dealing with. But we've got to make this one correction in our lives, that we listen first and foremost to the Holy Spirit. They did not do that. Number two, they broke principles. God said, don't eat of that fruit. She broke the principle, gave it to him. He broke the principle. Do not break the principles of God. Strive as a believer to be a principle-centered person to the best of your ability. The Bible teaches us like this in Isaiah chapter 28, verse number 11. The word of God is line upon line and precept upon precept. The word line means direction. The word precept means moral instruction. So the Bible is actually direction upon direction. It's moral instruction upon moral instruction. When you break principles, you lose your sense of direction. When you break principles, you lose your sense of morality. And so God wants us to hold on to the principles. How do I do that, Pastor? Psalm 119, I think it's verse number 11. Thy word have I hide it and pull it out when you need it. But make that decision. I'm going to be a principle-centered believer to the best of my abilities. And if I happen to make a mistake, I will confess my faults to God. He is faithful and just to forgive me. And his blood cleanses me from all unrighteousness. Say amen to that. What we need in the body of Christ from pulpits to pews are principle-centered preachers, musicians, singers, congregants. We need people that are principle-centered, all of us. And none of us are exempt from that reality. Number three, they abdicate their stewardship. For the first time in the Bible, you see a man who is salt with no savor. Adam is salt, Eve is salt. Well, she's not Eve yet. He's going to name her. The woman is salt, the man is salt, but they have no savor. They have stepped back from their responsibilities because they've broken principles. It's hard to lead when you break principles. You, have, you lose the moral authority to lead when you break principles. So in the book of Revelation, now you're going to find out that blessed are those that keep the principles of God, that they may have right to the tree of life. The fourth one is they hide from the light. This is the whole idea of them running, which is a very funny part of the narrative. They hide among the trees. The reason why they're hiding from the light, God is light. And he put them in the light. But when we sin, what sin does is it darkens our hearts. And the idea that the Bible is trying to show you is the condition of your heart seeks accompanying places. Do you understand that? So because their heart is now dark, they need dark places to hide. Do you follow what I'm trying to get at? So now the Bible corrects that for believers. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship one with another. You've got to strive to make sure that you don't live in the dark. You can't raise your hands to a God who's in the light. 
Because in him there is no darkness. And so they run, they try to hide from the light. Revelation teaches us that the nations that are saved, they're going to walk in the light of God. Let's go a few more. Watch. This is good. This is the last one. The last mistake. Mistake number five. They refuse accountability. God shows up. He says, man, what have you done? What does he say? The woman that you gave me. God says to the woman, what have you done? What does she say? The serpent. In other words, no one wants to take accountability for their decisions. Can I help someone? Whatever decision I make or you make, own your decisions. Can I say this again? Own your bad decisions. Own your good decisions. Just take ownership over them. I made that decision. I decided to do that. Right or wrong. It allows God to do what he needs to do. God can do nothing if you don't own your decisions. You throw God in a quandary. He can't do anything until you take ownership over your decisions. I don't have time to teach you, but there's a psychology here in the word of God that happens to Adam. And there's a reason why Adam says nothing more. He doesn't open his mouth again until he dies in the text. There's a reason why Eve names all the children, not Adam, because of coming out of this particular moment in their lives. In Bible study, I will show you what really happened to them psychologically. So now, here's what happens. They have sinned. Remember I told you last week, this is the part that gets good. Remember I told you that when God puts them in this place called Eden, Eden is actually the first tabernacle or the first sanctuary that exists in the Bible. Not the one Moses built. The one Moses built is a replica of one that existed before. Then God plants a garden in Eden. That garden represents, just like Moses' tabernacle, the holy place. And in the holy place, the tree of life represents the holy of holies. So they are actually in a tabernacle, a meeting place with God, but they have sinned in the holy place. This is the quandary that God has on his hands. The man and the woman, they are, the woman, they are sinners, but they're in the holy place. So now God can't allow them to stay in the holy place in the same way that the Old Testament priests could not come into the holy place unless he had blood with them. So God does three things. The first, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, foundational things. When they make the mistakes, failures. Watch God showing favor to them. And when God shows favor, sometimes we don't realize that it's God's favor. The first thing that God does is he covers them. Did you hear what I said? <laughs> I don't think you did. God didn't go whispering to the angels. The first thing he did was he... <laughs> Can I say that again? God didn't go whispering to the angels. Did you hear what Adam did? The first thing God did was he covered them. Because that's what love does. Love covers a multitude of sins. I'm preaching, but you don't know I'm preaching. In other words, when people make mistakes in the body of Christ, the first motion should be to cover them. Are you going to walk with me today? God puts coats of skins on. In other words, he made atonement for them and covered them in the holy place. That's what we have to learn. He didn't watch. He didn't crucify them. Covered them. Number two. Oh, this is going to get good. 
Then there's a, there's a cosmological issue at work here now. Because Adam and Adam, the man and the woman, they're the stewards of creation. But the problem is they are now sinners. But the creation is sinless. They are impure. The creation is pure. How can an impure steward steward a pure creation? So there's a cosmological imbalance getting ready to happen. In other words, the creation is getting ready to vomit. Creation is on the verge of vomiting. God has to do something about this. Do you know what God does? Don't think I'm crazy. You say, Pastor, you're reading too many books. Death make you mad. No. God takes the sin principle that is in the man and in the woman, and he puts it into the ground. And then God says to the creation, cursed is the ground for their sake. Did you hear what I just said? In other words, for the earth to contain them, the earth has to be just like them. If the earth is different from them, the earth will spew them out. So the moment God did that, you know what creation started to do? Creation started to groan and travail because they didn't sin. They were made subject because of them. This is what Paul is teaching in Romans 8 when he says, all creation has been groaning and travailing in pain, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. One translation says that creation has been standing on its tiptoes, looking ahead for the day when someone like Adam would come who would make the same mistakes as Adam. When Jesus showed up, I want you to know, you may not know this, but all creation started to rejoice. When he died on that cross, when his blood hit the ground, creation began to rejoice because they knew they were on their way to their liberation. God curses the ground for their sake. The last thing he has to do, this is all favor. The last thing he has to do, he has to move them out of the holy place. So he says now, drives them out from the garden. Can I explain that to you? If he doesn't drive them out from the garden, there's a tree there that they might be tempted to eat from. But they are sinners. If they eat from that tree, that tree will seal them in the state that they're in. Did you hear what I just said? If they take from that tree and eat from that tree, they will be sealed in a state of eternal sin. God cannot do anything. So God says, drive him out, lest he take and eat from that tree of life. When God moves Adam out of the garden, he does not move Adam out of his presence. He moves Adam out of intimacy with himself in the holy place and puts him now in the outer court of Eden. This is where the story gets good. Because from here now, watch, Adam is going to be in the outer court. And we're going to talk about this idea of being on the east of Eden and Canaanite theology. I didn't say Canaanite, Canaanite theology. I'm going to show you where the world system came from. I'm going to show you why people in the world seemingly have more capacity to get things done than people inside the church. It starts right here. The first thing that they do when they go into the outer court, Robert, this is amazing. They're in the outer court and they begin to have children. The man, I can call her Eve now because Adam names her. Adam and Eve are in the outer court. They have children. They don't have children in the holy place, so their children know nothing about the tree of life and the intimacy with God. The first thing their children begin to do when they're old enough, guess what they do? They bring sacrifices. 
Because when you're in the outer court, there are altars out there. But Adam is teaching his children something now. That if you want the presence of God based on what we've done, it's going to come at a cost. Something has to die to get us back there. So they begin to bring sacrifices. Cain brings an offering of the ground, the mincha offering. Abel brings an offering of the sheep, the helev offering, the fat. And they put the offerings on the altar. God has respect. You don't have to argue about what's the difference between the offerings. Hebrews tells us this. Abel brought his offering by faith. That's all. Faith makes all the difference. God says, I I like Abel's offering. I reject Cain. Cain gets angry. God looks at his face. And this is something so you know. Your face tells people what your heart is thinking. I said, well, no, 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 no. It does. Your face is actually designed. That's why your face in the Bible is called apanim. It's plural. It has a multiplicity of expressions based on what's going on in your heart. When you're happy, your face will tell us that. When you're upset, your face will tell us that. So God looks. He says, why is your countenance fallen? God has to now be a father to Cain because Adam has abdicated his fatherhood. He's not talking anymore. So God has to step in and be to Cain a father. He said, what's wrong with you, son? Cain is an amazing person. He's insolent, but I like him. I like him because he talks to God forthrightly. I said, where's your brother? I said, I don't know. I'm my brother's keeper. And what I like about Cain is he's a reflection of unbelievers. Unbelievers will tell you the way it really is. Church folks will double speak. Unbelievers will tell you, you can't sing. Church folks will say, bless your heart. Unbelievers will just tell you, I don't know where he is. I'm not my brother's keeper. So they have this conversation. And then God says, guess what? Because of what you've done, your brother's blood, Zadamim, crying to me from the ground. Not just your brother, but his children and his children. And you've killed a generation. And they're crying to me from the ground. So God exiles this boy, watch, out of his presence. This is something you've got to see now. God takes Cain from the outer court and moves Cain outside the gate. Here's where I need you to wake up just for a moment. Cain is no longer in the outer court. His parents are no longer in the, in the holy place. Cain is outside the gate. The Bible teaches us that outside the gate, there are dogs and sorcerers. I want you to get this. Outside the gate, there are dogs and sorcerers. A dog is not a lit- a dog is not your homeboy. A dog in the Bible is someone who is out of covenant with God. Are you following what I'm saying? Just like when the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and said, My daughter is sick, Jesus said, I can't take the children's bread and give it to the dogs anyone that's out of covenant Cain becomes a dog he's out of covenant with God but he now has to deal with sorcerers sorcerers are demonic spirits that are designed to train dogs listen carefully sorcerers are demonic spirits designed to teach and train dogs Cain goes out of the presence, grabs one of his sisters, and goes out of the presence of God. He is angry with his biological father. He's angry with his heavenly father, wants nothing to do with either one of his fathers. And Satan says, this boy is perfect for fathering. He doesn't have a father. He becomes a bastard. Satan picks him up and begins to mentor him. So how do you get that from the text? Well, let me tell you, he goes out 
from the presence of God. And the first thing that he does is he builds a city. If he had built a tent, I could understand. If he had built a house, I could understand. The boy builds a city. You've got to ask yourself, believers, who gave him the knowledge of how to build a city? Satan begins to teach him, this is how you build a city. He then has a boy named Enoch. He has a son. And he's taught by Satan that you should name the city after your son. That's legacy. In other words, continue what I'm teaching to the next generation. He names the city Enoch. Enoch then has a boy. His name is Irad. Irad has another boy. His name is Mahujael. And you start seeing the Canaanite generations. Mahujael has a son named Methuselah. Methuselah has a boy named Lamech. And this is where it gets interesting. Lamech makes a decision that he's going to marry two women. At first, you would think it's just a conversation about polygamy, but it's deeper than polygamy. What Lamech realizes, and this is what the sorcerer is teaching him, Lamech realizes that I can increase my capacity. My father put his seed in one ground and produced a result. I can take my seed and put it in multiple grounds and increase my capacity. When he puts his seed into his two wives, Ada and Zillah, they produce boys. One boy's name is Jabel. The other boy's name is Jubel. The third boy is Tubal-Cain. This is what the Bible describes them as. Jabel is a father of those who domesticate animals. Jubal is a father. Robert, are you here? A father of all those that play the harp and the organ. Tubal-Cain is an artificer and a master of those who pull things from the ground. The Bible didn't say that they were farmers. The Bible didn't say that they were metallurgists. The Bible didn't say that they were musicians. The Bible said they were fathers of those who play, who pull, and who harvest things. When you are a father of something, you have the right to put your seed into that particular thing. In other words, Satan has taught the unbeliever the power of capacity and putting their seed into the various disciplines of life. So now these boys become what I call titans of industries and giants of disciplines. You don't hear anything about the sons of God yet because Adam is not talking like the church refuses to talk. He's under a tree somewhere just doing nothing while people are putting their seed into the disciplines of life. Can I talk to the church? This is why we are not where we're supposed to be. That's why when you look at unbelievers, you say, how is it that you've got so much capacity? Satan is teaching them, but we have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the seed of God inside of you. I feel like preaching. That means you can take the seed and put it into your discipline and produce what God wants you to produce we're, we're, we're too small we're too small and whereas they are just producing and producing I heard this I'm gonna come down I heard this think about this they said uh, at the beginning of the week I think or last week the, the, the social media company Meta, which is just the parent company of Facebook, they, they lost so much in their, st their stocks fell. And in one day, they wiped out $200 billion in shareholder investments. 
They said in that day, Zuckerberg, who was the head of Facebook, he lost $29 billion in one day. And that dropped his net worth to $89 billion. Did you hear what I just said? One man lost $29 billion in one day. If I lost $29, I'd be in trouble. Am I preaching to someone? Am I preaching to someone? Am I preaching to someone? It's time for the church to come back into these areas. It's time for the church to understand that God has given us capacity. Listen, greater is he that's... That greater is he. Greater is he that's... Than he that's in the world. And so stand on your feet, everyone. This is the start of the world system. This is the start of the world system. That's why Robert music is the way it is. That's why industries are the way they are. That's why finances are the way they are. Because Satan grabbed some boys out of covenant with God and showed them the mysteries of how to increase, how to gain capacity, how to do some things. And Adam was there producing a boy named Seth and Enos. And when Enos is born, watch, men begin to call on the name of the Lord. And the journey begins to take us back to Adam, the last one. Jesus has already come. And I think we've misunderstood Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to apologize. He really didn't come to save us to go to heaven because we didn't fall from heaven. I want you to hear that again. Jesus did not come to save us to go to heaven. We were not in heaven in the first place. How could he save us to go to a place we were never at? He saves us to restore what was stolen from us. What was taken, what we abdicated. And when time is ended, I challenge you. He's not taking us to heaven. He's going to create a new heaven and a new If you don't embrace that, if you don't embrace that, you stop doing anything hoping to go there. But the real work is here. Until he comes. And when he comes, Richard, he's coming to find faith in the earth. There's so much capacity in this room. I can feel it. You know why sometimes, Richard, can I say this? Why we worship so much? There's so much in us that's untapped that's why when you were you could feel the power of God but it's just not for here it's to be released into the world and wherever God has placed you and when you get out there you begin to teach those Canaanites that this is what God intended for the world I want you to take your hands and I want you to lift them even at home I'm over my time, but I want you to believe God. I want you to be hard on yourself and say, I'm not accomplishing enough. I want you to say, so I can do so much more. I want you to take all the limits off. I said, I've wasted so much time. I could be so much further along. I could possess so much more. I can carry so much more. I can hold so much more. I can achieve so much more. I can earn so much more. Come on, take your seed and put it in multiple ground. 
Let's begin to harvest the earth. Our prayer is simple with our hands raised. There's a holy discontent within Oromico. In my 50s, I said, God, I could have done so much more. I could have accomplished so much more. But it's not too late. Our prayer is simple. Father, put us in our first place again. Stretch those hands. Pastor Brown, come and stand. Stretch those hands. Put us at home in our first place again. Make me one promise and I'll leave you alone today. Don't be satisfied until you've accomplished every single thing that God has spoken over your life. Don't die until you finish. Stay alive. Don't die until you finish. If they say cancer, say not now, I'm not finished. If they say this is, no, not now, I'm not finished. I am not finished. You are not finished. Tanika Chambers, come run right to the altar right now. You are not finished. Come, Richard, you're not finished. We are not finished. Val, we are not finished. We are not finished. I will be satisfied when I awaken his likeness. You are not finished. The devil is a liar. You are not finished. In the name of Jesus. Somebody give God a praise on that. You are not finished. Eli, you are not finished. Wally, you are not finished. You are not finished. The devil is a liar. You are not finished. I've just begun to work. Oh my God, I've just begun to work.